0: Get your Bibles, Get your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter six. We're going to be looking today at verses one through eight, and uh, thank you to Dennis and the, the team for leading us for helping us to sing these sweet songs, to be reminded of the greatness and goodness of our Savior. And it's a blessing always to be sitting on the front up here because I get to hear your wonderful voices wafting over my head as you sing out about your Savior as well. We live in challenging times. Most of us probably understand that. We see around us storm clouds, We see around us challenges. We see increasing sin and wickedness, violence increasing, lawlessness, those who are lawless not being held account by those who lead us. Many, many challenges, many challenges, sober challenges, frightening challenges, And these days are not unlike the days of Noah in our passage. And so as we come to this passage today, we'll read it as is our custom here, we'll read it and then I will pray. But my prayer for you is that you would think soberly about this time in our scripture and think soberly about the time in which we live today. Take seriously the warnings of Scripture that were given to the people of Noah's day. Think soberly and think righteously about the warnings that are being given to us as we think about our day and how it is that we ought to live during these challenging times. Let's read. This is the Word of God. We believe it. We believe it's inerrant and infallible When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today and for this blessed day together that you have set aside for us that we call the Lord's Day, that you have referred to in Scripture as the Lord's Day. And it is your day. Father God, it is your day. Jesus, Son of God, it is your day. Holy Spirit, it is your day. It is God's day. Together, we gather as your children. We gather as your bride. We gather as your elect people who you have covenanted with to celebrate you, to worship you, to proclaim your greatness, and now to read your word Help us, Lord, by your Spirit to understand these challenging passages. In your Son's name we pray, amen. There are four elements to my sermon today, deadly choices, divine patience, the depravity of man, and divine grace. But first, I want to dive right into some of the challenging parts of this passage, this is a difficult passage. It kind of uh, I find myself kind of chuckling when I looked at a number of commentaries, and a number of them said, "This is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible." And I said to my fellow pastors, brother pastors, "Thank you." <laughs> and they said, "You're welcome." <laughs> so I want to come at this passage uh, with humility, um, Godly men that we love and adore men that we'll be hearing even at the Shepherds Conference in a few days, disagree on some of the po- points of this passage. And so I'm just going to jump right in. And so the beginning here, I'm I'm going to refer to um, a number of people. But the challenge is, is there, there, there are four options here on who the sons of God are, I believe. And um, I listened to a wonderful sermon by Dr. Steve Lawson that was very helpful to me on this passage. And I'll also refer to Dr. Peter Gentry at Southern Seminary as well. And here's one of the things that he says. He says, number one, there are Bible scholars who would say that these sons of God, the the term there, sons of God, refer to fallen angels or demon spirits who could be embodied in some human form or just in their fallen state, demonic state, they have cohabitated with the daughters of men to produce a hybrid or mongrel offspring, Steve Lawson's words. I would encourage you to look also for this position, you might look at um, Dr. Peter Gentry. He has a, uh, a thing from Southern Seminary, if you just did talk, Dr. Peter Gentry and put this passage in. Uh, he gives a very good uh, explanation of the term sons of God, and how that term occurs in the Old Testament a few times. And usually when it occurs, it refers to angels. So the question here in some level is, are these angels, the sons of God, or are these men? So are they angels or are they men? Um, Steve Lawson says, and I'm quoting from him, I don't think that's the proper interpretation for this, which would be, the sons of God are angels or demonic angels. He says sons of God is used three times in the Old Testament in the book of Job to describe angels. But he believes that that, that this is based more on sensationalism than proper interpretation. Uh, Those are pretty strong words. Um, And you can see for yourself if you do some research on this that, that men fall on different areas of this, godly men that we respect. Jesus himself said in Mark 12, 23... That the angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. And so I would think that that it could be too far of a stretch and it could be reading too much into this passage to believe that these sons of God are angels who have the ability to cohabitate with human women. John Calvin uh, refers to this um, in his commentary on Genesis, and, and he also doesn't believe that that's a possibility. I'll come back to this in a minute. A second option is that that these are mighty men, these Nephilim that are referred to here. The sons of God are dominant powers that are often tied in with the Nephilim in verse 4. They're mighty men, they're proud, they're arrogant, or they're dominant. And they're dominating weak women and pushing themselves upon them. But the text doesn't really say that as well. The third option is these sons of God are are from the line of Seth, the godly line of Seth, and the daughters of men are from the line of Cain. Lawson believes that this might be closer to the truth. I agree with him. But the fourth option that I think is key, that unlocks the passage, is, is very simply this, that the sons of God are exactly what they say they are. They are the sons of God. They are believers who have been adopted into God's family. John Calvin believes that the true interpretation of any passage is that which is most plain and obvious. And what seems to be most plain and obvious is that the sons of God are indeed sons of God. They're believers who may have come down through the line of Seth, and the daughters of men are just that they are daughters of men. They're not daughters of God, they're not of God, they are daughters of men meaning that they are unbelievers. And so what we have here is believers, those who follow God. And in our passage a few weeks ago, it says, at this time, men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. And so this is the trajectory of godly, faithful people who are calling upon the the name of the Lord in, in a covenant relationship with God and calling upon Yahweh, who now, as they begin to multiply, begin to choose wives for themselves because of their attractiveness, because of their physical appearance, because of everything except their faithfulness to Yahweh. They saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. They were attractive. And so this excitement on the inside of them, this lust drives them to just choose whichever daughter, whichever wife they want. Yet they were not looking at the heart. They did not see faith. They did not see devotion to God. Their fleshly appetites ran away with them. And they married against the will of God. They married, it says, at the end of verse 2, whom they chose, not the one whom God would have marked out for them. Their flesh, their lust, were leading them. When we look at a number of other commentaries, there are other problems I do believe are are with the the angel view. And that would be, number one, I would say the immediate context of the passage. There's nothing I see in the context that would identify the sons of God with angelic host. Angels have not been mentioned in the book of Genesis to this point, and certainly nothing in the story demands that we understand the sons of God as angels. The focus is on judgment of humans, as Kenneth Matthews notes in his commentary. From beginning to end, he says, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 concerns humanity and its outcome, not angels and their punishment. What's clear here is that the flood is God's judgment against man and there's no reference to the culpability of angels. I think that's one of the areas that we want to guard against as we read challenging passages is to try not to speculate. And so what what I can say, I I know we we can have disagreement about who these angels or men are, but the one thing that we must be clear about is that what the Word of God says, the reason that the earth is going to be destroyed by flood is the wickedness of men. It, it seems to be the case that, that if it was angels, or, 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 and I'm saying this kind of, you know, demon babies, <laughs> okay, if, if, it was, if it was the offspring of angels and humans, it seems to be the case to me in the context that, that Moses, if he is the writer of Genesis, would say God came to destroy the world by flood because of demonic beings, but he says it's the wickedness of man. Um, the phrase is, of course, Son of God is, is, can be unclear. There are a number of references that refer to angels clearly in the Old Testament. Uh, Ken, uh, Kenneth Matthew also says this about translations. He says, Elohim can be rendered, rendered a genitive of quality, meaning godly sons, which could refer to the heritage, heritage of the Sethites. Also as important uh, is the weight of the Pentateuch's testimony, which identifies the Israelites as children of God in Deuteronomy, in Exodus, in Psalm. This resonates well with taking the sons of God in 6.2 as an allusion to godly or covenant offspring. Since it cannot refer to physical descent, the angels are not physically generated, then we must take sons of God as metaphorical regardless of referent it follows then that the expression can be applied to more than angels, those who bear the image of God. And that's from Ken Matthews' commentary. It's also a, a, is a cryptic reference. If the sons of God refer to angels in Genesis 6, and the reference is cryptic, angels have not been mentioned thus far in Genesis. And later, they will be mentioned a number of times, but every time that they're spoken of, they are called angels. So when the angels come and visit Different patriarchs, when the angels uh, are seen, they're called angels, and so why not just call them angels here? Um, another challenge will be that angels don't have physical form. And speaking of the angels, Hebrews 1:7, he makes his angels winds, his servants a flame of fire. Uh, Hebrews 1:14 are not all angels ministering spirits to those who will inherit salvation. In various textbooks on Christian theology note that angels are without bodies. Angels, uh, Wayne Grudem says in his systematic theology, angels are created spiritual beings with moral judgment and high intelligence, but without physical bodies. Angels are spiritual beings. They don't have physical or material bodies. Physical manifestations recorded in Scripture must be regarded as appearances assumed for the occasion, like we call these angelophanies. That's from Millard Erickson in his Christian theology. As to the natures of, of, of angels, they are described as pure spirits, immaterial or incorporeal beings. The scriptures don't attribute bodies to them of any kind. That's from Charles Hodge's Systematic Theology. Wayne Grudem concludes, "...since angels are spirits or spiritual creatures, they don't ordinarily have physical bodies. Therefore, they can't usually be seen by us unless God gives us a special ability to see them or in their ordinary activities of guarding us and protecting us and joining us in worship to God. They are invisible." However, from time to time, angels did take on bodily form to appear to various people in Scripture. Though good angels at time assume some physical form, it is not the case with evil angels. There's not another biblical example of evil angels taking on physical form, and God would have to grant them that ability. When we see demonic instances throughout the New Testament, demons are always possessing people. So the one way that I would say, uh, if I accepted these sons of God came into the daughters of men, uh, I I, I would have to say they'd have to be through, through, pray for me, (laughs) through through, through possession. Thank you. Through possession. And so demons in the New Testament, we see when they appear, uh, they're possessing other people. And it's always a downward kind of spiral. It's not Um, uh, hero-type men. (laughs) They're always having uh, real problems. Also, we remember that demons are limited by God's control and have limited power. The story of Job makes it clear that Satan could only do what God gave his permission to do and nothing more. Millard Erickson writes this, The great power of angels is derived from God, and the angels remain dependent upon his favorable will to exercise it. They're restricted to acting within the limits of his permission. This is true even of Satan, whose ability to afflict Job was uh, circumscribed the will of the Lord. God's angels act only to carry out God's commands. There's no instance of their acting independently. Only God does the miraculous. As creature angels are subject to limitations of creaturehood. One of the challenges I would have with this as well, and it just goes to me in, the, in, in what I would say is God's, God's good design of the universe and all that is in it. When he talks about creatures, he says as he creates them, they will all reproduce after their own kind. They reproduce after their own kind. And I, and I, I, I don't see how um, angels and humans can cohabitate to produce something that is of a different kind. And so, and so those, are, those are some of the challenges I see to, to that view. I know that, that, that there are those in, in our congregation who, who could disagree with me, and that's okay. I want to hold this uh, theology humbly, and, uh, and uh, it's, it's one of the things that Peter Gentry says in his little 15-minute uh, clip, if you, if you ever looked at that is, that, is that he ends his position to say the one thing we can't be on this necessarily is completely dogmatic, we know for a fact that this is what this is. Okay, so that's where I am, all right? That's, my, that's kind of the front load of this passage. Now I'm going to preach my sermon. Um, and you know my position about the sons of God. I take it that they are that they are, the sons of God are godly men who make unwise and sinful choices. And because of that, we see the wickedness grow on the face of the earth, okay? All right, here we go. So, number one. Deadly choices, deadly choices. Look at our beginning passage there. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. So our passage today opens with a surprising snapshot of the world less than a thousand years after creation, just 10 generations, as as, as Pastor Jeff preached to us last week, 10 generations separate Noah from Adam. A handful of centuries since humanity's first parents have rebelled in the garden and unleashed sin's deadly infection across the human race. Yet already by Noah's day, this virulent disease has metastasized dramatically. Like a cancer, we've we fought cancer in, in my household with Hayden. And we've seen cancer break apart and spread and sin is like that. It spreads, it metastasizes, it, it grows, it infects. Echoing the account of creation, Moses tells us the population has grown rapidly as men have multiplied on the face of the land. But as we arrive in Genesis 6, something has terribly gone wrong. This passage reveals that the deadly disease of sin has corrupted human hearts and now it erupts openly across the landscape. Depravity and rebellion saturate the earth as the wickedness of man spreads unchecked in every direction. How did the world spiral so quickly into such deep defiance against their creator? The writer to Genesis puts his finger on the root issue in verse 2. As the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and took their wives any because their wives any they chose right away we we see we notice a disturbing compromise as the sons of god choose wives based merely on outward appearance rather than spiritual compatibility what's worse they did this indiscriminately not just tolerating but welcoming intermarriage with pagan unbelievers from the daughters of men and we know because we're standing on this side of history why This doesn't work. It never goes well, does it? Think of Solomon choosing pagan wives and how his heart is led astray into demonic worship and idol worship. Those of you who are singles, who are yet unmarried, listen to me. Who you marry is of vital importance. Who you marry is of vital importance. No doubt these these deadly choices didn't seem so dangerous at first. We can imagine the excuses that these believers may be used to justify their willful disobedience. After all, pagan women were attractive and inviting. Refusing them might limit one's options considerably. I mean, look, come on, either I could could be alone the rest of my life or I can marry the pagan. (laughs) Besides... Perhaps their faith would rub off over time if they modeled it winsomely. Maybe they they could lead their unbelieving wives and children to embrace the God of Adam or Seth somewhere down the road. But once this faithful line was crossed, there was no going back. Sin rarely shows its full colors up front. Rather, just as the tools of an enemy infiltration are initially disguise and deceit, so the alluring guise of temptation leads step by step down a path toward certain doom. Deadly choices always carry deadly consequences. Deadly choices always carry deadly consequences. Before long, wholesale apostasy supplanted covenant faithfulness to Yahweh. This cycle does not represent some Anomaly unique to Noah's day. Wickedness always goes from bad to worse. Unless unchecked, wickedness, like inertia, will continue going on from bad to worse unless it's affected by an outside force, (laughs) like inertia. It must be checked by an outside force. And here, of course, in our sober passage... The outside force is the God of the universe. We see it in our own culture. Marriage, we think about 60 years. I, I can remember going to my, my church in Greenville, Texas, and the pastor had a special series over the summer. This is probably 1972. The pastor had a, set, a special series called um, Hot Issues, like Facing Our World or something like that. And he, he had like six different sermons, and there was... One about abortion and one about, and one was on homosexuality. I was probably in fourth or fifth grade. I remember thinking to myself, what? What do you, I, I, I had no comprehension. I had no ability to even understand men liking men like men like girls. It didn't make any sense to me at all. I'd never heard of this, I'd never been exposed to this, which is which is right and good. <laughs> but we've moved now. Think of moving from 1972. We moved from just uh, marriage between a man and a woman. We moved from that to, to just fornication of people living together, people uh, shacking up, as we would say. <laughs> and then we moved on beyond simple fornication to, 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 to between a man and a man, and then a woman and a, and a woman. And now we're to a place where we we can't even define what a woman or a man is. We are in challenging times. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Sin is insanity. Sin is insanity. To kick against the goads of our creator God and to determine what, that his design is not a good one and that his does design is even, even a bad one. We witness the same cycle in the history of Israel. After Joshua led them into Canaan, they enjoyed supernatural victory and blessings from God for a season as they walked in obedience. But sin loves to play the long game. Insidiously, through cycles of compromise, rebellion, repentance, and rescue, Israel repeatedly returned to embrace the depraved pagan practices of the surrounding people. As the book of Judges records, what started with isolated instances of intermarriage and cultural assimilation ended with whole villages worshiping Baal and Molech. Are we so far from there? When our governor puts up billboards in anti-abortion states, inviting people to send their babies to us, we'll kill them for you. Send them here. Send them to California. They'll get sanctuary. Even the Word. You don't go to sanctuary to be murdered. A seasonal slide into moral relativism opened the door in those days for children to be burned alive and sacrificed. Brothers and sisters, that descent follows fast on the hills of ever-expanding Deadly choices. In the New Testament, Paul urges believers to resist compromise with the wisdom of popular culture and not to be taken captive through hollow, worldly philosophies. Colossians 2.8, see to it. You can hear his, his seriousness here. See to it. See to it that no one takes you captive to philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. How do we guard our children? How do we guard our families? How do we guard our city, our state, our nation? By making decisions according to Christ. When you go off to college and you're like, man, she's pretty good. She's really cute. That's She's really cute. Quoting one of the guys from... uh, Duck Dynasty, the old guy, I can't think of his name, watching it one time, I remember he was talking to his grandson. He's telling about some young lady and he said, makeup and a pretty face can hide a whole lot of sin. (laughs) Young brothers, listen to me. Young brothers, don't be like the men of Noah's age who see a woman who's attractive And choose anyone that you want. You choose a godly woman. A woman that God would choose for you. Young women. When that young man comes and he's really handsome. He's got a jaw like some star I don't know. (laughs) He's got muscles. And he comes up and tells you how pretty you are and how cute you are. And starts saying all the right things. The first thing, you know, people will say, this is, this, is this is from the pit of hell right here. Oh, you should never talk about what on a first date? Religion or politics? Ask my wife. She'll tell you, those are the only things you should talk about on your first date. Exactly. That's the Amen. only thing you should talk about. <laughs> Thank you, sister. <laughs> my wife thanks you. Religion and politics. Do you love Jesus? Do you believe the word of God is the word of God? if you don't believe this, if you don't love Jesus, get away from me. (laughs) I can be your friend. Then it's not a a dating enterprise. It's an evangelistic enterprise, right? But this is not a man for you if he doesn't love the Lord. How can he lead you in the ways of righteousness? How can he love you as Christ loved the church? If he doesn't love Christ, how can he love you as Christ loved his bride? He can't. That's 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 the simple answer. All right, enough of that. <laughs> Thank you. Paul also sternly awards, uh, warns us to avoid even casual association with so-called brothers who walk in unrepentant sin because bad co- company corrupts good morals. James sounds a similar refrain, reminding that friendship with the world is hostility toward God, staining those who embrace it as spiritual adulterers. James 4.4. 4. John closes his first epistle with an urgent warning for disciples of Jesus to guard ourselves from idols that teach teachings that are falsely attributed to God. John Calvin, on this very point, says this. when talking about marrying an unbeliever. He says this in his commentary on Genesis. It was an intolerable profanity to pervert and to confound the order appointed by God, meaning the marriage order. A believer and a believer. It is not a light crime to violate a distinction established by the Lord. The worshipers of God are to be separate from profane nations, but they prostitute themselves in the succession of time, meaning over multiple generations. The sons of God would then degenerate when they bind themselves in the same yoke with unbelievers. They formed illicit marriages after their own lust by mingling themselves with the wicked. They profaned the worship of God and fell away from the faith. Brothers and sisters, God could not be more clear on this vital principle. Deadly choices pave the road to destruction. When we tolerate sin, when we embrace worldly philosophies or partner in religious endeavors with unbelievers, we abandon discernment and common sense. And we throw open Pandora's box to forces beyond our control. And once our community crosses that Rubicon, Satan then wastes no time exploiting breaches, breaches in our integrity to corrode the collective commitment to walk in God's ways. Light has no partnership with darkness. Righteousness cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Believers must not be yoked together with unbelievers. And these are not artificial boundaries drawn up by uh, joyless bigots to just, to just to ruin our party. These are like guardrails. When you drive up to Big Bear or you drive on, on certain roads and, and uh, you drive, it's, it's scary there, right? It used to when we go up to Big Bear and drive up the mountain. They didn't have some guardrails there. And that's pretty frightening. You have that weird sense, I think, when you're driving along, you think, there's nothing to stop me, to go over the edge. I better keep my hands on the steering wheel and keep my eyes focused and be be serious about my driving right now because I could go over the rail and die plummet to my death. Those guardrails are there for a reason. And God has done that for us. He has placed these guardrails for our protection. For our protection. Determined here and now to shine His lights amidst, amidst a crooked generation. Be salty saints, skilled by the word of God, And living, bright, shiny lives. Turn from seeking instruction or partnership from worldly voices. Instead, be discipled by Christ Himself as you walk in step with His Spirit. Learn from Noah's day. When the people of God abdicated heavenly discernment to indulge forbidden desires. Do not repeat the tragic mistakes of Israel that brought such devastating consequences upon future generations. And refuse to follow so many churches today already sliding into deception through incremental compromise. Someone has said that the, the road to hell is a gradual one. I remember a gentleman talking to my kids when we were down in the, um, where the homeless folks live. I can't think of what it's called. Skid Row, thank you. And, this, and this, this gentleman tells us, I did not wake up one day and say, I want to be a homeless bum on the street addicted to meth or whatever it was he was addicted to. And he described to my youth group slow steps, incremental steps of I started doing this and that. I started sampling this. I started smoking marijuana. I started one little thing after another until finally he had lost his wife. He had lost his children. He lost his job. He lost his house. And he was saying to my kids, look at me. You want to be like me? Then do what I did. Make these slow Incremental bad choices, and that's what's happening, I do believe, in Genesis 6. Well, that brings us to divine patience. Point number two. Point number two, divine patience. Then the Lord said, Verse 3 My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, for his days shall be 120 years. Here we have a reference to capital S spirit, the Holy Spirit here the third person of the Trinity. And we see that, that the Spirit here is there and God in His divine patience, um, some would think that maybe this is God limiting the length of a man's years, how old he might be. But we think, I, I, think, I think more what, it, what, what, what the Lord here is saying is that my patience will not go on forever. He is warning the people of Noah's day, he is saying, I'm going to give you 120 years, basically. From exposing the deadly nature of sin, Moses' spotlight shifts to this this divine patience and persistent mercy of a loving creator toward an openly rebellious creation. As a holy judge, God had and has the right at this point to justly eradicate mankind from the face of the planet. Remember what he said to Adam, on the day that you eat this, you will die. From that point forward, it is right and just for God to wipe out any sinner that he chooses. What's amazing about God is not that he's going to drown all of the people on the planet except for eight people of Noah's family. What's amazing is that God hasn't done it already. And we'll stand and see a clear distinction as well. He doesn't spare Noah because of Noah's sinlessness. We'll get to that in a moment. Yet devastating judgment is not God's first response. Instead, we find here a long suffering. We talk about patience. (laughs) If you're a patient person, you have an ability to suffer long. I really struggle with that. If you don't struggle with that, think of yourself in your next doctor's appointment. <laughs> I walked in the other day and I'm sitting there in the, in the doctor's office and I'm thinking it's going to be 20 or 30 minutes and I'm there like an hour later and I'm thinking, oh, come on, you know, come on. I'm suffering here. Don't you see me suffering? <clears throat> God has the ability to suffer long. For John 1, 1 John 4 8 says, God is love. His anger always stands as the righteous correction of perfect justice mixed with sincere sorrow. So God extends mercy instead of fury. He continues pleading through the faithful witness of his servant Noah. 2 Peter 2 5 says, uh, God preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. We don't know a lot of what Noah was doing, but obviously he's building the ark over those many, many years. And we know that he was a herald of righteousness. Noah was a preacher. And as he's telling his sons, hand me another board, go get some more gopher wood. Let's do this, let's do that. He's, people are, you can imagine people watching him thinking, what in the world are you doing? You know, scoffing, scoffers, scoffing. What are you doing? It's going to rain. It's going to come a flood. What's a flood? <laughs> Most scholars believe it hasn't even rained on the earth at this time. And so what is he doing? And, and, and he's preaching. He's a herald of righteousness. And God is being patient with those people, hoping that some would turn. And I'm sure as Noah preaches, he can be saying, come and <laughs> Come on. Join me in the ark. Come and join me. But who gets in the ark with Noah? His wife, his three sons, and their wives. Eight people saved from the justice of God. Through the scriptures we see, century after century, God continues crying out through the prophets, through circumstances of every kind. With the heart of Hosea, Toward wayward Israel, God laments in Jeremiah three eleven. He says, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord. It's a cry of every parent with a wayward child. It's a cry of every every parent, every father who has a, a son at home who's beginning to look at other things, go places that he shouldn't go, think things he shouldn't think and, and the heart of a of a long-suffering father says, return to me, listen to me, hear me. yet yeah, like stubborn mules, the the more God reaches out through tender mercies, the further, Mankind runs from his embrace deeper into brazen, brazen rebellion until finally the gentle hand of divine discipline must become the rod of correction until perfect mer- mercy gives way as it must eventually to just wrath. Here in Genesis 6, we arrive at this halfway, par- halfway mark and we sense that pivot point of the door closing When the door of repentance will finally swing shut as the first raindrops of judgment begin to fall. When God solemnly swears at last that His Spirit will not always strive with such relentless resistance. And that day is not distant as we like to imagine in our pride. Verse 3 declares plainly, yet His day shall be 120 years. There's mercy in that from God. God refrains from immediate destruction. Yet neither does He leave humanity without warning of certain judgment ahead. Like the 40 days preached uh, doom from Jonah to Nineveh that brought revival, God compounds tenderness with a sober reminder that divine patience has an expiration date. Through Noah, He is telling Those people at that time, there's a time coming when judgment will fall. They don't know the exact time. They don't know the exact date. Just like us. We know. He's told us the Lord is coming. There will come a day when we stand before that great throne, as Dennis mentioned in our song a minute ago. And he's warned us. And he's warning you, and I'm standing here as a herald of righteousness like Noah, to warn you again today to say, the time is coming when Christ will come back. And you you must give an answer for every idle thought, for every evil deed. If God asks you, why should I let you in here? Your answer must be only one thing. Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, has paid for all of my sin. Jesus Christ has paid the price for all my sin. And my faith is wholly and solely in Him. There will come a day. There will come a day. Judgment never stands alone. It always trails on the heels of despised mercy. That's the amazing thing about the depravity of man's heart is that God can offer mercy and grace and man can continue to turn a blind eye away, turn a deaf ear to, I love you, come to me. Listen to Christ's compassion toward resistant Jerusalem in Matthew 23. And you hear the same cry from Jesus that you hear from the Father. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, stone, stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, let none mistake the heart of the master when he must discipline those he loves. If his judgments were not perfectly tempered by mercy, if God did not plead long with mankind, if he refused to keep providing fresh opportunities for the impenitent to turn, then who could stand? As David rightfully declared, after grievous personal sin. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? It's because of God's God's great mercy that He is waiting with divine patience, divine patience. But God warns plainly in Proverbs 29.1, a man who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. Listen to it again. A man who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. And I would venture to say that that man will say, what in the world's going on? Why did that happen? I've heard it from a husband's lips. I don't know why she left me. Why in the world did she leave me? Over and over again, you've been warned. Over and over again, you've been charged. Over and over again, you've been preached to. And you are a stiff-necked man, stubborn in all your ways, and suddenly destruction comes, bam! And there is no remedy. Today is the day of salvation. If you're don't be (laughs) stiff-necked, don't plug your ears and say, I can't hear what Patrick Kevin's saying, la 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 la. I'm not a sinner, I'm a good person, I'm a good man. Look at me, look at my life. I read my Bible every day. I've been baptized. I go to church. I do all these wonderful things. Look how great I am. No. Don't be stiff-necked. Be humble. Listen. Listen. When that dreadful hour approaches for each impenitent soul, all opportunity to repent, repent vanishes instantly like a thief in the night. How shall you escape if you neglect so great a salvation. Number three, the depravity of man. Having exposed the deadly nature of unchecked sin and unveiled the persevering mercy of God towards sinners, the writer of Genesis zooms down to the root issue that made the flood inevitable, the shocking depravity that had metastasized across the human race. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters, the flood did not take God by surprise. He foreknew full the violence with which the earth would become filled. And He could have easily erased humanity from the slate the very day Adam rebelled in the garden, starting fresh the next day. Yet God continued patiently enduring mankind's defiance, not owing to any twisted delight, seeing His creation languish under sin's oppression. Scripture reveals unveils a father who's willing to suffer infinitely to recover fallen sons and daughters designed for intimacy with him. We see that, don't we? In the passage, it it, it grieves the Lord's heart. How could that be, that it grieves the Lord's heart? Well, the New Testament tells us that we also can grieve the Holy Spirit. Our God is not some some soulless uh, automaton (laughs) some 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 mechanical robot who's just up there making computerized decisions and is untouched by our sin there's a deep there's a deep mystery here. I've got to admit that. there's a deep mystery here. but my heart is grieved to see the sin of of my son or the sin of my wife or my own sin or the sin of brothers and sisters in the congregation. I'm grieved. isn't that in a small way what the father must feel as well to see His creation turning their backs upon Him. He is grieved over the depravity of man. But by Genesis 6, the toxicity of sin, this long suppressed, had erupted openly across the whole earth. All restraint is removed. The true heart of man stands unveiled here in shocking detail. The diagnosis defies sugarcoating. Total depravity infecting every dimension of of human existence. Verse 5 offers no ambiguity. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only every thought, not, not, not a few thoughts, but every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. As God looks down and sees, and in two passages, two, two, two places here, it talks about God seeing and God seeing. God sees, He knows. He sees our thoughts, He hears our words, He sees our actions, and He stands in heaven and looks and judges and knows. This is a world fully abandoned to doing what is right only in its own eyes. and The consequences were devastating. The scripture confirms without whitewashing that the terminal diagnosis of humanity left unrestrained to follow the inclinations of its internal corruption. Unrestrained man left to his own devices, fallen man will again, as I said before, go from bad to worse. Sin unchecked will just continue to move and move and grow and grow. In verse 5, Moses puts his finger directly on the diseased heart and he says, Every intention of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. Inclination in Hebrew means formation or design or framework. So the foundational drives and orientations woven into the fabric of every person's understanding from birth, birth. All of his intentions were were evil. His thoughts takes this into the conceptual arena where our worldviews are are being formed and rooted and plans are made. The heart touches the control center for governing all our human agency. It's, It's where all our decisions come from. The heart just means all of us. And so out of the heart, the mouth speaks. You don't have a mouth problem. You've got a heart problem. And in our heart, we make decisions, and those, the, those heartfelt decisions, those decisions from our heart, from our soul, from our self, inform our will and inform our thoughts. Whatever your heart decides, your will follows. As I've said here before, we can only make choices according to our strongest inclination. The will is the mind choosing or the heart choosing. And so, if we want to have our wills changed, the first thing is our heart must be changed. Our heart must be changed. Scripture pulls no punches. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Psalm 14, 1 to 3. The fool says in his heart, There is no God, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. Isaiah 64, 6, All our righteous acts are like filthy rags before God. Romans 8, 7-8, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, and it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot... Please, God. Far from evolving upward, as our secular philosophers would tell us, the natural man is left to his own devices, devolves ever downward. No neutral ground exists upon which man can construct this staircase to heaven. His feet remain mired in Satan's deceitful grip. This is the doctrine of total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity. It's not that man is as bad as he can possibly be, but that every, every ounce of him, every bit of him, his mind, his will, his emotions, everything about him has been corrupted by the fall, completely and totally depraved. And we must rightly grasp this catastrophic condition that results from the fall because failing here inevitably leads to to further confusion regarding biblical thinking. If we downplay human corruption, then you, dis, then, you, then you diminish the depth of grace required to redeem anyone. If I, don't, if I reject the, the, the doctrine of total depravity, then, then you must believe there's some little righteous reservoir somewhere inside you that, where you can make really good and godly choices it diminishes grace. Rejecting total depravity diminishes grace because God then, like Allah, will just put his finger on the scale and tip it over because all your good deeds are on one side and your bad deeds are on the other. And and what does Allah do? An Islamic scholar told me one time, he just, Allah puts his thumb on the scale and, and tips it over a little bit for you. That's how you get into heaven or into paradise. But no, if you put all your good deeds on one side, all your bad deeds on the other, guess what? There's no real good deeds, are there? They're all. You're like, wow, what's what, what's, the, what's on that side of the scale? What is that over there? Oh, those are oh, those are filthy rags. <laughs> you thought those were righteous deeds? Oh <laughs> God, you thought those were righteous deeds? Those are filthy rags. No. <laughs> We come before the Lord, empty, broken, sinful. Say, God, cleanse me. Help me. Save me. Lord, take these filthy rags. Take these filthy rags and dress me in the robes of of Jesus' righteousness. Well, that brings us to divine grace. Divine grace. This is, as I said before, a sobering, challenging passage. When we think of God coming in judgment, sparing only eight humans on the planet and drowning all the rest, we then come to verse 8. It's like a lone candle flickering in the dark, and it grabs our attention. There's relief here for us from this distressing, distressing vision of mankind's death spiral. There's a glimmer of hope. What does verse 8 say? But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. All this corruption, all this wickedness, all this judgment going to be coming but 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 Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord here we see that this is not Noah's merits it doesn't say that Noah was sinless. Noah was completely righteous. Noah was perfect. Noah was better than those around him. The Word of God says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word used here for favor means acceptance not earned by performance. It carries the sense of unmerited grace In Genesis 6:9, it says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. How can this be when verse 4 earlier, God declares every inclination of man's heart was evil all the time? Noah's consistent obedience only became intelligible or becomes intelligible when we grasp that divine grace enabled what remained humanly impossible in his nature. Make no mistake here. Noah does not receive this special grace owing to any partial virtue that separates him from the rest of humanity and their slated destruction. As Isaiah reminds us, even our most righteous works, apart from God's empowerment, compare like filthy rags before His holiness. The singular distinction that sets Noah apart what positioned him to become a favored instrument of salvation in his generation was that God, in his lavish mercy, set his covenant love upon this undeserving sinner to grant him power to walk uprightly by faith in reliance upon his God. Noah found favor. God sets his favor upon Noah. We know from Hebrews 11 that that Noah is a man of faith. That faith is is imparted to Noah. That righteousness is imparted to Noah. And Noah acts upon what's been done for him. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Deborah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Dave found favor in the eyes of the Lord. John found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Redeemed. Redeemed. You have found favor. If you have put your hope and trust in Christ, then we have found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's not because of our sinlessness. It's not because of our righteousness. It's because of his good mercy, his great pleasure, his covenant love to us. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I'm skipping over a lot of pages. (laughs) so let's wrap up with this we know where this is all going to go someone's going to be preaching it in a couple of weeks we move toward the flood and what happens there God comes in judgment the raindrops fall God places them in the ark and closes it with his own hand and eight people are saved by water and through water. The wicked are washed away and the righteous are left behind. And so what we see is the only way for them to be saved was to be in that ark as God's judgment falls upon the rest of the world. And so for us today, there is an ark. There is an ark. And that ark is Christ. Because judgment will come again, not by water, but by fire. And for those who are not in the ark, they also will be taken away, washed away. So my encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, friend, is to check yourself today. Am I in the ark, the ark that is Christ. Will I be saved to be with God forever? My hope and my prayer is that you will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for this, this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, may you fill in the gaps of all that I have said in my preaching. Help us to be reminded. that you are a God of great patience. And may we not thumb our noses at that patience. May we not turn our ears and eyes away from that patience. May we instead hear your cry. Come to me. Come to me. You will give us rest. Lord, we thank you that you have saved us through that ark that is Christ. And we're so grateful that all of us who are found in him, Jesus Christ, will be saved, are saved now, will be saved forever, glorified to be with you for all eternity. We continue to pray, Lord, that, that the warnings of this passage will be heeded by those who need to heed them. Help us today, Lord.